All right, let's bow and ask the Lord's um, blessing on our time together this morning. Would you bow with me? Thank you, Father. Thank you for the day that heaven came to earth, that God became a man, and he walked with us, revealing to us you in his character and in his words and in his power, and that he did indeed live a sinless life, a perfect life, and presented the perfect credentials to be our Savior, and that he willingly drank the bitter cup of suffering and death that it pleased you to give to him so that we might be fully cleansed forever of our sins, past, present, and even yet future. And thus we might spend eternity in your holy presence, giving you and your son the glory and the honor and the praise that you so mightily deserve to receive from your creatures. And thank you, Father, for the truth that it is not your will that any should perish but that all would come to the redemption freely offered to them because that all includes me and it included everyone in this room and it includes anyone who has as of yet not accepted the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, who he is Lord, Savior from their bondage to sin and death. And I would ask, Father, that if there is someone here present today who has never accepted the free gift of salvation, through Jesus Christ and what he did for her on the cross, that today would be the day of her salvation. And now as we look at your word and we, we study the sermon of your faithful servant Stephen, may we not so much look at him or even at the one he talks about in this passage of the scripture who is Joseph, but may we be focused on the Christ that he so desired, both of them, Stephen and Joseph, that they desired to exalt for it is in that blessed name of our Lord that we pray. Amen. In the one sermon that Stephen was providentially privileged to present before the high court of Israel, he achieved, of course, by the Spirit's empowerment, he achieved a good many different things at one time. The more I look at this sermon and get into it, the more I am amazed at how much he accomplished with it. He presented a concise, purposely selective account of Jewish history that managed to keep his listeners' attention because they loved to hear about themselves, didn't they? and their own history. So he kept their attention with it, while at the same time, he kept their anger in check long enough to accomplish purposes such as making his defense against the accusations that were brought against him, that he had blasphemed God and Moses and the law and the temple. Now to blaspheme, I forgot to define that, but to blaspheme is to take that which is sacred and degrade it make of it something worthless. By way of Stephen's narration of Israel's history, he was telling the council that the accusation against him of having blasphemed God was false. It was absolutely false because he fully believed it was God who sovereignly planned and orchestrated the establishment of the Jews as a people and and Israel as a nation. He believed it was God who, who brought Abraham into the land. And it was God who promised him the land for his descendants and blessed him with the promise that the Messiah would come through his seed, through Isaac, 
and then through Jacob, and then through Jacob's son, Judah. It got narrower and narrower, didn't it? And then eventually on down through David and Jesse, and then, you know, Joseph and the Lord. I mean, Jesse came before David. Uh, so Stephen is saying that he believed in the, in, in the sovereign God who had done all these things. And then as he proceeded, and we'll get to this Lord willing next week, as he proceeded through the sermon, he also demonstrated that he believed God ordained Moses to be Israel's deliverer from her bondage in Egypt. That's in verses 33 and 34 of this sermon. He believed it was God who ordained the law through Moses, and that's in verse 38. And God who gave the heavenly pattern to Moses to build the tabernacle, verse 44. And he believed that God uh, permitted Solomon to then build the temple. That's verse 47. Now, it's a good thing for you and I. It is a good thing that Stephen made this defense of his faith because in doing so, he really was defending all of us. He was defending our faith. The Jews to this day will accuse Christians of blaspheming their God because we say that Jesus is God. So it's a good thing he defended us. We are not blasphemers of the God of Abraham. He is the same God we believe in, God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. We are genuinely, or we should be, we should be thankful for Moses and the writings of Moses and the law and the tabernacle because they were all gifts given for us and for the Jews, and, and, and for us also, to point to the one who would come to take away the sins not only of the Jewish people, but of sins of all the world, including us, the Gentiles. Or we have some Jews in here. <laughs> but uh, the Jews were to see those things, and I call it things even though Moses wasn't a thing, he was a person, but he wrote a thing. He wrote the Pentateuch, didn't he? Um, but the Jews were to see Moses and the law and the temple as pointing forward to the coming Messiah so that, they, that when he came, they would have great assurance of the one who claimed to be the Messiah. You know, there were many false messiahs and they, they could check through Moses and uh, the law and the tabernacle and everything that they pointed to to know for sure who their true Messiah was. So they would look, they were to use those things to look forward to the coming Messiah. We as Christians look back on those things, Moses, the law, and the temple, as what we could call assurance anchors that Jesus is the one who fulfilled them. Now, another accomplishment of Stephen's sermon is that he built up his case. Not only was he defending himself, and as, doing so, as he was doing so, he turned the tables around, and he was building a case of indictment against the Jews, against the, his Jewish audience. It was they who were the real blasphemers, not the Christians. It was them. They had taken that which was sacred and had tried to make of it something worthless. Jesus was the just one. That's what Stephen calls him at the end of his sermon. But they esteemed him not. In rejecting the just one, and that's a name for deity, isn't it? In, in rejecting him, they had made of none effect the writings of Moses. Because who did Moses write of? about Jesus. Remember in John 5, 47, he was talking to the Jews, the religious rulers, and he said, you know, Moses, Moses, you're always talking about Moses. Well, if you really had believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote of me. 
That's the Pentateuch is all about Jesus. In fact, he said, you know, there will be a prophet that will come like unto me, another deliverer, except a spiritual deliverer, not just a physical deliverer. He spoke of Jesus. And they are the ones who blasphemed the law. How? Well, they twisted it. They reinterpreted it. They added to it. They took away from it. And worst of all, they thought that they could fulfill it themselves. They did not need the Savior who would fulfill it for them. And they also blasphemed the temple. They had made the temple into a house of merchandise and a den of thieves. Furthermore, they despised the true temple of God and did exactly what Jesus had said they would do back in John chapter 2. They destroyed it. And what was he talking about? His body, because when he came, he was the spiritual temple of God. His body was the temple of God that housed God, and they did destroy it. They blasphemed it by destroying it, and he had to raise it back on the third day. Well, as Stephen built his case against the Jewish religious rulers, he also indirectly exposed their unjustified physical obsession with three things. They were obsessed with the land, and they were so proud of the land that they lived in the land. And they were proud of the law that they, of all people in the world, had the law, and they had the temple. And they had taken those things and proudly turned them into their false Trinitarian God, we could call it, with a small g. Those three things had become their God. They had come to see them as pillars of proof for their heavenly security. You know, unless they were an adulterer or a murderer, because they were Jewish and they had the land that God had given to them, and they, if they lived in the land and they had the law, and they were the sons of Abraham and they had the temple, you know, that pretty much guaranteed that they would gain heaven. They had made blessings. Those were blessings from God. That they were to share, right, with the rest of the world and talk about God. But they had made blessings a cause for boasting and for self-righteous bigotry because they turned down their long, pious noses even at their Jewish brothers who lived outside of the land, didn't they? Men such as Stephen, Jews who lived in the nations of the world in the diaspora. And they certainly despised those who did not have the law in the temple such as the Gentiles. So they had taken blessings and used them for self-righteous boasting and bigotry. Well, in spite of all the many various things that Stephen was accomplishing in his sermon all at one time, he would have completely failed, completely failed as a spirit-filled preacher if he had not also presented to the high council of Israel evidence for faith in Jesus Christ. He needed to present to them Jesus. Did he not? Yes. Every preacher of, of, of Christianity needs to preach Christ and him crucified. And he did that. He did that powerfully. He preached Jesus very powerfully. But here's the amazing thing. He did so without ever mentioning his name. Not once does he mention Jesus by name until... The sermon is over, and he has been stoned, and he is dying. Then he says, Lord Jesus, first time. But in his sermon, look, you can look through it, verses 2 to 50. <clears throat> he never once used You know, I was thinking about how 
how he was so clever to obey those in authority over him who had told the apostles and all the Christians, you know, you are not to speak or teach in that name. He did that. He obeyed them. But he also obeyed the higher authority because he did preach Jesus. Oh boy, did he. Well, how did he do that then? How did he preach Jesus without ever using Jesus' name? He did so by using several key figures, several key characters, real men from Israel's own history. And they were Joseph and Moses. Israel's, you see, Israel's rejection of her long-awaited Messiah was not something that happened in a day. Rather, it was the consequential result of their forefathers' rejection of God's deliverers and God's spokesmen in every one of their periods of history. The sons of Jacob, now think back, Old Testament, Jacob. Remember Jacob? He wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and his name was changed to? Israel, right. And he had 12 sons who became the patriarchs of, uh, of Israel. The sons of Jacob initially, the first time, rejected Joseph. We'll be talking about that. When Joseph first came to them out there in the fields of Dothan, they rejected him. They stripped him of his robe. They threw him in a pit. They sold him for silver. So they rejected Joseph the first time. Now the second time, what do they do? They fall before him <laughs> and confess him to be their savior. Um, <clears throat> got, uh, all right, so that was during the patriarchal era that they, Israel, their forefathers, the patriarchs had rejected their first deliverer. The children of Israel also the first time had rejected Moses. God's chosen deliverer of the era of the old covenant, the era of the law. Remember when Moses found out who he was and then he went and he killed an Egyptian because he was mistreating one of his Jewish brothers and, and uh, the, then one of the Jews said, who made you to be a prince and a, and a judge over us? They rejected him the first time. And so where did he, he fled and he went into the backside of the desert for 40 years. So the first time they rejected Moses, didn't they? Who was their physical deliverer during the old covenant era. And then we know also they rejected and even killed many of Israel's Old Testament prophets. So then in the new era of the new covenant, their rejection and their murder of Jesus, who is their one, was their one and only spiritual deliverer. You see, Joseph and Moses were just physical deliverers, saved them physically. Jesus came to save them spiritually. Um, <clears throat> And their resistance, not only did they reject and murder Jesus, but their continual resistance against the Holy Spirit, which Stephen mentions over in verse 51, the Holy Spirit trying to work through the church, through the apostles, and here now Stephen, that, all of that had its precedence in every stage of Israel's history. So you see their, their rejection of Jesus wasn't something new that happened in a day. This was kind of their pattern, wasn't it? 
Now, we began looking last week at the main body of Stephen's sermon, which we're calling the narration. Acts 7, verses 2 to 50. That's his narration of their history. And we are considering Israel's history, just like Stephen did, in terms of three great periods of Israel's history. There was the period of the patriarchs, that's in verses 2 to 16, the period of Moses and the law, verses 17 to 43, and the period of the temple, verses 44 to 50. Now, the period of the temple actually began with David's desire to build a temple, but he couldn't do so because he had the blood of Uriah on his hands, but it was given the, the privilege to his son Solomon to build the temple. When did the temple era end? When they killed Jesus who was the spiritual temple of God. Well, in the two main characters presented by Stephen in the period of the patriarchs, we have already looked at Abraham. What, right? We did that last week. If you weren't here, pick up the tape. A jet tour through the life of Abraham. And now today, we're going to discuss Stephen's selective narration concerning the life of Joseph. Now, back in verse 8, we didn't talk very much about that, but in um, verse 8, Stephen had very briefly mentioned Isaac, the chosen son of Abraham, through which the Messiah would come, and how Abraham circumcised Isaac, you know, to say to God that he believed in his covenant promises. And then Isaac uh, had Jacob, of course, he had Esau and Jacob, and it was always the second sons that God used for the Messianic line, because you must be born again. <laughs> it's the second birth that matters. There's a pattern there, too. Um, and Jacob had 12 sons who became the patriarchs of Israel. So in saying that in verse 8, what Stephen was doing was setting the stage for bringing to the forefront front of his narrative Jacob's 11th son, Joseph. He's developing his case, Stephen is. He's developing his, his case for that blistering indictment that he is going to deliver to the Jews. He's kind and nice all the way through until he gets to first, verse 51, and then all of a sudden the punch, right? Ye stiff-necked. <laughs> you do always resist the Holy Spirit. So he's going to, he's building up his case, and here now he's going to use their very own patriarchs to do so, to build up his case against them. Now, the 12 sons of Jacob were greatly revered by the Jewish people. They were greatly esteemed because they were the fathers of their tribes, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And at that time, now this is before the temple records were destroyed in 70 AD, so at that time, everybody knew which patriarch they came from. You know, they could meet you on the street and they'd say, well, what tribe do you come from? I'm from Issachar, I'm from Manasseh, I'm from Ephraim, I'm from Zebulon. You know, that was, they were very proud of their tribe and their, their, their patriarchs. But Stephen <laughs> is about to remind them of something regarding their patriarchs and their treatment of their own brother Joseph that was very probably the first time that this true biblical account, which every Jew knew probably by heart, had ever been presented to them as a graphic illustration of their own evil, envious betrayal and murder of Jesus. Think about that. There's this high council, these Jews who know their Bible, their Old Testament inside out, but they had never thought about how the brothers of Jesus had treated Joseph 
in light of what they had just done to their own brother, Jesus. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't know about all these pictures in the Old Testament. In Scripture, we have two types of prophecies given to us. One is real simple. One is verbal predictive. And that just is simply written. You know, it's just written out and, um, and you take it just for what it says. Like, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. Simple, right? It's written out. It wasn't so simple for the Jews, but it's still not simple for a lot of people in the world. A virgin, are you kidding? But that's what we call verbal predictive. Um, like where it says in Micah 5, 2, that it would be from Bethlehem, Ephrata, that the ruler would come, etc. Then there are other prophecies that are what we call typical. And I love them. I have books on my shelf at home that are this thick, that thick, with types from the Old Testament. There's types of, of Jesus. There's types of the Antichrist. There's types of the church. There's all kinds of types. And I love the study of types. Types or pictures. Um, that it, th those are prophecies that are given to us in picture form. For example, there are a lot of picture-type prophecies of the Lord Jesus that are, were presented in the Old Testament that the Jews never, ever knew or realized were actually pictures of their coming Messiah. They had no idea that the Old Testament was full of pictures of their coming Messiah. They missed all that. Um, now, some of those pictures were inanimate objects, such as Noah's Ark. Now, they did not know that Noah's Ark was a picture of their coming Savior, that there was only one way into the Ark, one way into safety from judgment uh, on God, of God's wrath, judgment from God's wrath. They didn't get that. They knew the, the account, and they believed it happened, but they didn't know it was a picture of their coming Messiah. What about the rock in the wilderness that was struck? and out of it gushed forth living water. Well, they knew that as an account, but they had no idea that that was picturing Jesus Christ, the rock, who had to be smitten, and out of him came living water, flowing living water. So there were types that were inanimate objects. There were types of Christ that were animals, such as the Passover lamb. Every time they killed a Passover lamb, it was telling them that the Savior would have to be slain, and his blood, you know, applied to the doorposts of their hearts. But they didn't see that. They didn't get that. They weren't looking for a Messiah who would be slain. They were looking for another physical deliverer, weren't they? They didn't understand that the rams that was caught by his horns in the thicket as a substitute for Isaac was a picture of Jesus Christ. They didn't get that. Um, so some are inanimate objects, some are animals. Some of the prophecies concerning Christ were events, and we did a study on one such event, well, seven, the feast days of Israel. Those pictured major events in the coming Savior's life. And also there are a number of Old Testament individuals who were picture types of Jesus Christ in various different ways, such as Adam. Christ is the second Adam. There is uh, Melchizedek, who is a picture of Christ in his high priestly ministry. There was Isaac. I just mentioned Isaac. He was a picture of Jesus Christ. Moses, Joshua, David, Jonah, on and on we could go. Many, many individuals who pictured in one way or another Jesus Christ. However, there is one man 
who stands out above all of the others as the most remarkable type of Jesus, and that is Joseph. Now, it is taught in Bible college and Bible seminaries, and I know this because my son went to Philadelphia Biblical University for his master's degree in Bible, and he was sure to tell me this, because I like to take types and make, you know, make a lot of pictures out of things that aren't supposed to be. So, and people can do that. They can go overboard. So it is taught in Bible colleges and seminaries that it is not right for us to dogmatically make something or someone a type of Christ unless the scripture gives us permission to do so. Now, all those other examples I just gave you, Scripture gives us permission to use them as types of Christ. Now, and, and that's true. We should not use types unless the Scripture gives us permission to do so. All right? However, with that principle in mind, I have also heard and read Bible commentaries and preachers who have said that nowhere in Scripture does it give us permission to use Joseph as a picture and type of Jesus. Aha! They are wrong. We do have permission. We have permission from spirit-filled Stephen in Acts chapter 7 because that is exactly what he does. He uses Joseph, his condensed account of Joseph, as a picture in type of the Lord Jesus. Now, with his brief and selective summarization of the life of Joseph, Stephen was not just defending his faith in Christ. He was slam-dunking his listeners with their own history. I know this had to be the Spirit doing this and the Lord speaking through him because there's no way a man could just stand up and do this sermon. This, just, this sermon is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. They were just like their own rever revered patriarchs because it was from envy that they had rejected the one sent by the father to deliver them from their evil remember Pilate knew it was from envy they were envious of Jesus and his popularity with the people and his power and all they were just envious of him now, while we are going to be looking at the brief account given by Stephen and then actually going quickly through a jet tour of Joseph's life, I may forget every now and then to talk about Jesus, okay? But what we're going to be doing as we look at Joseph and what Stephen has to say about Joseph, I want you to put on Jesus Christ-focused glasses, okay? Because what we're going to look at, think of Jesus, all right? Focus on him in everything that we talk about with Joseph. So let's look at Joseph, verses 9 to 16, what Stephen says. And this is really a, an abbreviated <laughs> account of Joseph's life. It, you know, his time was limited, so he, he just got what he wanted in here. He starts by saying, and the patriarchs moved with envy. There he goes, right away, moved with envy. He doesn't say anything about Joseph's childhood or anything, does he? He just says the patriarchs moved with envy. Envy sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Actually, I went through this and I underlined every time it said Egypt because remember, he's also focusing on the fact that they're so obsessed with the land. Well, guess what? Joseph was in Egypt. 
most of his life. From the age of 17 on, he was in Egypt. So notice Egypt. Verse 11, now there came a dearth or a famine over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. That's Israel. And great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn or grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And notice this, I have this underlined. And at the second time, first time he was sold for envy, right? Second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. And Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers, all the patriarchs, spent most of their lives in Egypt, and were carried over into Shechem, it's actually Shechem in the Old Testament, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. All right, remember back in chapter 6, verse 11, Stephen had been accused of blaspheming God, and that is the accusation that he took most seriously, blaspheme of God. Right? So that's the one he def wants to <clears throat> defend himself about, first of all, that he did not blaspheme God. So in verses 2 to 16, <clears throat> this is his first defense. Now, it was through his account of Abraham, which we looked at in verses 2 to 8, that Stephen was stressing he believed in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He is the one who spoke everything into existence just by the power of the word of his mouth, right? He is sovereign God. So therefore, he can choose whoever he wants to appear to and speak to, to use for his plans and for his purposes, even an idol-worshiping man from a Gentile land. So with Abraham, Stephen was stressing he believed in the sovereignty of God. Now here with Joseph... Stephen is stressing his belief in the providence of God. What is the providence of God? Well, he can use people and events and things and whatever he wants to, passing caravans of Ishmaelites, um, for his plans and purposes. He can take that which man meant for evil and do what with it? Turn it for good. That's his providence. And it is the God, God's providence that is highlighted over and over and over again throughout the life of Joseph. Now, <clears throat> Stephen did not get into a lot of details at all concerning Joseph's life because, as I said, his time was limited. And his listeners, he didn't need to get in all those details. Why? His listeners knew the life of Joseph. They knew it very, very well, just like they knew the life of Abraham. So rather, he emphasizes certain events in Joseph's life to accomplish the goals he's aiming for, which we already have discussed. However, some of us in here may not be as familiar with Joseph's life as the Jews were back then. And uh, maybe there's some things in his life, if you are familiar with it, that you never saw in light of some things we'll be mentioning today. So what we're going to do right now is make a, take a quick jet tour through Joseph's life. Stephen doesn't do this, but we're going to do it, all right? Now, <clears throat> the life of Joseph is given to us in Genesis 37 to 50. I think 50. You said 51. 
I'm wrong in my notes. I'll correct that. Okay. There's only 50 chapters in Genesis. Okay, so chapters 37 to 50, Joseph's life. That is 18 chapters on one man. What's God telling us just in that? <laughs> Obviously, God has some serious purpose in mind for devoting that much space and detail to one man's life. And one of those purposes is to demonstrate his providence. Another purpose, however, is to show a prophetic picture of the two comings of the Lord Jesus, of the Messiah. The Jews never understood there were to be two comings, one where he would suffer as a Passover lamb and the other where he would reign as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, Joseph, I had mentioned earlier, was Jacob's 11th son, but actually he was also Joseph's first son born by the love of his life. Did I, what did I say? Jacob's, Jacob's first son born by Rachel. And, you know, she was the love of his life. <clears throat> and so he had special love for Joseph. Joseph was almost a miracle birth because Rachel had been barren. For a long, long time. Now Joseph didn't have an easy life. Joseph faced affliction starting very early in his life because the birth of his younger full-blooded brother Benjamin resulted in the death of his own mother, of both of their mothers. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. In fact, now I asked this yesterday and I got a slam in the face. <laughs> I asked the ladies yesterday how many of them came from dysfunctional families, and my daughter was the first to raise her hand. <laughs> Could kill her. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> I couldn't. I mean, almost everybody raised their hand. <clears throat> if you didn't, you're you're abnormal. If you didn't, okay. <laughs> but if you think you came from a dysfunctional fa family, you ain't seen nothing. Wow, life of Joseph was very dysfunctional. His family. His, all right, I'm going to just give you a few things. I can't exhaust them all because we'd be here all the rest of the day. But his grandfather, Laban, had tricked his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, into marrying the wrong daughter. He tricked him purposely into marrying the wrong daughter. His mother, Rachel, stole idols from her own father, Laban. His father, Jacob, had two wives at the same time and two concubines. His father feared his brother, Joseph's uncle Esau. Rightfully so, because Esau had wanted to kill Jacob. Two of Joseph's brothers, Simeon and Levi, were murderers. They had murdered every male in a, a, the town of Shechem. One of his brothers, uh, Reuben, his oldest brother, had slept with his other brother's mother. His father's concubine. Another older brother, Judah, had immoral sex with his own daughter-in-law, who had disguised herself as a prostitute so she could have sex with her father-in-law. See, you thought you had a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and then there was the fact that all of uh, Joseph's older brothers, all of them, hated him. They hated him and they envied him. But here's an amazing thing. Here's the good thing good news, because I came from a, a, a dysfunctional family. I guess I produced another one, too, according to my daughter. But, uh, 
The good news is that <clears throat> from such a dysfunctional family came a truly upright young man like Joseph. You know, uh, there's not a single sin mentioned in the life of Joseph. Not a single sin mentioned. I'll talk about that a little later. But um, we know he was a sinner. He was a sinner, of course, because he was born a human being with the Adamic sin nature, but the Holy Spirit purposely never, ever includes any sin of Joseph. Why is that? Well, because he was to be a picture of someone else who was really was sinless. God had providentially determined to use Joseph for the preservation and the spiritual development of that young family nation through whom his through which his son was going to enter into the world. Now remember, Israel at this time is a small family. It's just a family. 75 souls, it says here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, their wives, their children. It's, a small, it's just a family. The nation is just a family. So God is going to use Joseph to preserve that family and to, to, to grow it spiritually. And sometimes the best way to grow is to be in affliction, right? They were in affliction a long time in, in Egypt. So anyway, if God is going to use Joseph, which he is, he needs to put Joseph through a special school. It's called the School of Hard Knocks. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that school? It's a good school to go to. <laughs> because you sure do learn a lot from that school. And it began in his childhood. The Lord was going to develop through, in that school, Joseph's character. And he was going to stretch his faith. So rather than promoting him instantly to where he wanted him, what happens when somebody just instantly is put in a position of... Pride, yeah, pride. And they, they don't appreciate where they are, do they? Or what they have received. So he was going to put him through some extremely difficult and almost, well, very humbling and almost humanly impossible situations because this is how God refines his children. That's just the way he does it, and it's a good way because it works. When Joseph was only 17 years old, Jacob, his father, summoned him to his side and gave him an assignment. He was to travel a good distance in order to check on his ten older brothers who had drifted far from the father. <clears throat> and they were shepherding over in Shechem, an evil place, 60 miles away from where Jacob, their father, was. So the father said to his beloved son, Come, and I will send thee, you, unto them, to see whether it is well with your brethren. The implied message there is, I want you to beseech them to return home. They have drifted too far from me. And Joseph's immediate response was, this is right out of Genesis, here am I. Reminds me of Jesus when he says, lo, I come. Lo, I come, as it is written in the volume of the book. He was readily submissive to his father's will, even though it put his own life in peril to travel a good distance to check on his brothers, his wicked brothers, in an evil place. He even went the extra mile, we could say. I was listening to Adrian Rogers this morning. Anybody else listen to him? He talked about the miracle mile. <laughs> and Jesus said, always go the second mile. Well, Joseph did that. He went the extra mile because when he got to Shechem, they were not there. So he had to tra travel another 20 miles to find them in Dothan. 
He obeyed his father no matter what the cost. Joseph was willingly putting himself in harm's way because he knew at 17 years of age, he knew that his brothers, his older brothers, hated him and envied him. And it says in Genesis, they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. Nothing good to say to him at all. So he knew of their hatred. They hated his divine revelations, and they envied their father's special love for him. Now, when Joseph came into view, finally, when he came into view and the brothers saw him coming, they began to mock him, calling him the dreamer. And I thought about the Lord's own brothers, his half-blood brothers. Um, and Joseph's brothers were all half-brothers other than Benjamin. Benjamin didn't reject him, but the other half-brothers did. And I think it's important they were half-brothers because Jesus only had half-brothers. If he had full brothers, he wouldn't be the son of God. Did you get that? Anyway, um, Jesus' half-blood brothers mocked him too. They, thought, they came to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. So they call him a dreamer. And that's, they're mocking the revelations that God had given to Joseph in several dreams. Now remember, there was no scripture at that time. No scripture whatsoever. So God would appear and speak to people like Abraham or Moses in a burning bush. Or sometimes he would reveal things in dreams. Remember Jacob's ladder, the dream of that? Well, he, he revealed some truths to Joseph. And Joseph had proclaimed those divinely given revelations to his family, as he rightfully should have. If we've been given divine revelation, which we have in this book, we're to share it with our families and with others, aren't we? We can't help it if they hate us for it. And I've, Have you ever been hated for div revealing divine revelation to somebody? They'll say, like, who do you think you are? <laughs> you say that you know you're going to heaven? <laughs> you're so proud. And then, then they hate you. For it. Well, that's what happened to Joseph. It made, when he revealed the dreams, the divine revelation to his brothers, and that was not a sin for him to do so. It would have been a sin for him not to have done so. But they hated him for it, because in the first dream, which involved sheaves of grain bowing down to his sheaf of grain, it spoke of them bowing, you know, giving obeisance to him. Well, brothers didn't like that too much. And you can kind of understand that. And then in his second dream, he dreamt, uh, and it involved the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. That was really speaking of his supremacy over the whole house of Israel. Sun, moon, father, mother, all the brothers. The whole house of Israel bowing down before him. Well, <clears throat> since Joseph was alone when he appeared to his brothers, he was separated now from the father's care, and the brothers never dared to do anything to him when the father was there. Now he's separated from the father. With the brothers' mockery, there also came thoughts of murder. Some of them had probably wanted to murder him many times in the past, but now he's alone. So they're thinking of murder. And so they take Joseph by force, and they strip him of his special robe, which symbolized his father's favor, that coat of many colors. And they cast him into a waterless pit to suffer and even die. But providentially, I'm not going to get into it, but Reuben, the oldest brother, wasn't there at the time. When he comes, he has this plan, oh, let's not kill him, let's throw him in the pit. And his plan was to come back later on and take Joseph out of the pit. But while Joseph is gone the second time, guess what just providentially happens to come by? A caravan of Ishmaelites. 
and I even feel strange calling them Gentiles, but they were because they were not of the Jewish lineage. They, they came from Ishmael, not Isaac. And so they're Gentiles. So <laughs> Judah providentially comes up with this idea. Let's not kill him. Let's profit from him and sell him to this caravan of, Egypt, of Ishmaelites on their way to, to um, Egypt. So they turn him over to the Gentiles. They betrayed him and they sold their own brother for 20 pieces of silver. Does that sound maybe a little familiar? It was a tragic, horrific thing. But Stephen, go back to Stephen now, in the sermon in verse 10, he reminds the Jews that although Joseph's brothers did all of this to him, yet what? Yet God was with him. And Joseph, even as a slave, prospered in Egypt. Bought by, providentially, a rather decent Egyptian who just happened to be the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's palace, from whom Joseph could learn about a lot about Egypt and the ruler of Egypt. The captain of the guard named what Potiphar purchased Joseph from the slave market, and the Lord prospered Joseph so much so that because of his good character, young man, dysfunctional family, but integrity. Because of his good character and his hard work, soon Joseph was in charge of all Potiphar's household. And then, just like, you know, finally things are looking a little favorably for poor Joseph. I'm sure, you know, years of heartbreak and what his family had done to him and that he was separated from his beloved father and his, his younger brother Benjamin. Just heartbreak to be betrayed like that from your own family. But finally, things are going fairly well. But suddenly, out of nowhere, he's faced with this temptation, terrible temptation from his boss's wife. And yet he, he righteously resists. But then he's maliciously and, and falsely accused anyway. He was righteous, but he was falsely accused. He was hated without a cause, and he was accused without a cause. And the one who served as his judge, Potiphar, knew that Joseph was innocent. But since the accuser was his own wife, he was between a rock and a hard place, wasn't he? Just like another Gentile named Pilate. <laughs> Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but wasn't he between a rock and a hard place? Now, both men should have done what they knew was right, but they wavered, they succumbed, and both uh, Potiphar condemned Joseph to prison, and we know, of course, Pilate condemned Jesus to death. So suddenly, Suddenly, everything that Joseph had worked so hard to gain all those years by his good works, his conscientious stewardship, and his loyalty was all lost. He's thrown into the dark dungeon. He's thrown into a prison. But even there, God was with him. Even there, God was with him. And you know what? He shines even extra bright in the darkness of that prison. And soon, because of his integrity and his hard work and his just good character and his pleasant personality, his good spirit, essentially he becomes what we could call the keeper of the keys of the prison. And then he is providentially put into contact with two other prisoners, two male factors, one whom, who rises and one who doesn't. 
Does that remind you of something on Calvary? <laughs> One of the prisoners had been the um, Pharaoh's chief butler, and the other had been the king's chief baker. The butler, the baker, and the candlestick maker. That's not really how it is, is it? What is it? Is it? Yeah. Butcher, yeah, butcher the baker and the candlestick maker. Well, this was the butler the baker, and there was no candlestick maker. And from these men, think too, from these men, Joseph would have also learned more. I mean, they were in contact with Pharaoh, so they would have, he would have learned more about the government of Egypt and especially the person of Pharaoh. What's he like? You know, tell me. And, so he would, and now that would be something good to know, wouldn't it? If one day you were going to be the number two ruler of Egypt next to Pharaoh... Wouldn't that be something good to know about his character and the government and everything and how it ran? Now, Joseph didn't know that, did he? Did he know he was going to ever be? If you had told him he was going to be number two honcho in Egypt, he would have laughed. But God knew it, didn't he? So you see the providence of God at work here? Well, God sent more dreams. One to the butler and one to the baker. Joseph gave the proper interpretation of them. And the good interpretation went to the butler. Because his dream meant that he would be restored to his former position in three days. And when that happens, Joseph asked him, please remember me. I thought about the, the thief on the cross. It was the opposite. He asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus did remember him. But you know what happened with the butler? He didn't remember Joseph. He, he was restored to his position in three days, but he completely forgot about Joseph. What an ingratitude. <laughs> right? Well, I guess he just plumb forgot. Maybe it was the beginning of Alzheimer's or something, but he forgot. And you know how long he forgot? Two years. That's a long time in prison. And that had to have gotten Joseph down, don't you think? Wouldn't it? You, I mean, every day he'd be waiting. Oh, I wonder when the butler's going to remember. I'm sure, Lord, please have that butler remember me <laughs> to the Pharaoh. You know, he had thought when it happened it was his key to get out of the prison. But one week goes by, months go by, 24 months go by, and finally God himself has to get, you know, get involved and kick that butler back you know, in his mind because he gives Pharaoh a couple dreams. <laughs> and Pharaoh says, I've had some dreams and I don't know what they mean. And oh, finally the butler goes, oh yeah, there was this wonderful guy down in prison and he can interpret your dreams. So finally, <laughs> you know, think of Joseph, all those months, two extra years, I don't know how long he was total in prison, but two more years? He must have been, he, he must have felt, yeah, talk about patience, he must have felt forsaken, uh, like God had forgotten about him. I don't know what he thought, but God was with him all along. No matter what Joseph thought, God was with him. It was for his sovereign purposes to save that infant nation, Israel, that God allowed Joseph to go all the way down in human circumstances and all unjustly. But then, within one 24-hour day, God suddenly changed everything. When Jesus came bursting out of the tomb, didn't that change everything? <laughs> to this day and for all of eternity. <sighs> He lifted Joseph right up out of the pit of the prison and he promoted him straight into the palace where he was second ruler to the king, right hand of Pharaoh, where he was given a new name. Do you know what his new name was? Zaphnath Paneah. 
Try saying that 10 times in a row. Zaphnaphpania, Zaphnaphpania. <laughs> Ancient Egyptian, and guess what it means? Savior of the world. And if you go back and you read the Genesis account, you'll be like me crying in my chair studying. Because they put Joseph in a chariot and they rode him through the, the city. And they commanded everybody to bow the knee. That's exactly from the scripture. Bow the knee to Zaphnaphpania, the savior of the world. Because he had saved them from dying in the famine. Wow. And Joseph was given a Gentile bride. Hmm. Do you realize that not only was Abraham given a Gentile bride, Sarah was also from Ur of the Chaldees. Joseph was given a Gentile bride, an Egyptian woman, and Moses was given a Gentile bride named Zipporah from Midian. What do you think all that was picturing? The church, yes. But the church consists of Jews and Gentiles. And Zip, uh, not Zipporah, um, I don't know what her name was. Joseph's wife's name starts with an A, I can't remember it. But his wife bore him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now think about this. Okay, think about this one. They were half Jewish and half Gentile. What's the church? Part of each, right? Now how would you like to go around in first century Israel and boast that you're from the tribe of Manasseh? I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. And then this other smart Alex says, oh yeah, half Gentile. <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Oh, so interesting. All right, so uh, bad as it looked, God was with him. Everything changed in one day, and we see that God's providence. And then Joseph went on in that place for seven decades to protect Israel. Now, Stephen didn't give all these details, but ha after having mentioned that Joseph's brothers had rejected and sold him out of envy in verse 9 and saying that despite their rejection of Joseph, God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions so that he was made ruler over Egypt. After saying that, then Stephen reminds this high council of what happened with Israel's patriarchs as a result of what they did to their brother Joseph. Following their betrayal and their rejection of Joseph, there came a great famine, not only in Egypt, but particularly hard on Israel because they didn't have a Joseph storing grain for them, right? Storing bread for them. And Israel was hit particularly hard. Great famine. It, come, it got so bad that she had no sustenance. You notice that in verse 11? No sustenance. Circumstances grew so dire that Jacob sent his sons to find one who could provide them with the bread of life. You know, that's going to happen soon in the tribulation. Things are going to get so dire for Israel that she's going to seek the bread of life. Unknown to them in their tribulation, God was providentially driving them to the one source of salvation who was their own brother. The one, now listen to this, the one the patriarchs had deceived Israel. Who's Israel? What's his other name? Jacob. 
okay? The one the patriarchs had deceived Israel into believing was long dead. You see, the brothers went back, didn't they? And to Israel, Jacob, they said, Joseph is dead. But what did they really know? They knew he was not dead. They knew that. And you see, Stephen is talking to, we could call them the patriarchs of Israel in the first century, the Jewish high mucky mucks, the, the Sanhedrin council. And what had they just done? They had deceived Israel into thinking that Jesus was dead when they knew he was not. They knew he wasn't dead. They knew he resurrected from the dead. The Roman soldiers came and told them what had happened. And there was just no way, no way. You know they sent people to look into the tomb and they saw the evidence of the empty grave clothes. And what did they do? They bribed the Roman soldiers to tell a lie. So they too had deceived Israel into thinking Jesus was dead, like the patriarchs deceived Israel into thinking Joseph was dead. But Joseph was not dead at all, was he? In fact, he was seated at the right hand of Pharaoh with a Gentile bride at his side, enjoying the exaltation up there, while God is providentially at work to bring about the repentance of his brothers in having hated and envied and rejected and shamed and betrayed and sold the Father's beloved Son so many years before. You see, when we're in heaven, after the rapture, the church is going to be with, with Jesus and while, while we're up there, what's going on down here? Great tribulation to drive his brothers to him. Now, using this true account, Stephen was warning Israel's religious rulers that their similar treatment of God's beloved son was going to plunge them into a severe famine, a spiritual famine that would last a long, long time. Truth is, it is still going on today, is it not? Israel's back in the land, and more and more Jewish people are going back to the land, aren't they? Like what just happened with France, they're going to be going. But they're still just like the body, the bones of the Valley of Dry Bones, they're back. Look like a, they look like a human, they even have flesh and everything, but there's no spirit of life in them yet. Because they're in, still in that spiritual famine. And it's not going to end until Israel is finally driven through great tribulation to the point of having no sustenance. Well, let's get back, we'll get back to that in a minute. But first of all, I want to consider Joseph's own interpretation of his circumstances. And this is given to us in Genesis 45. Now, all of this will be in the notes, so don't worry about finding places, because I took great pains to put all the verses from Genesis in your notes. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so Joseph's own interpretation is given to us in Genesis 45 when his humbled brothers are brought before him. Now they have no inkling of an idea who he is. They haven't seen him in years, okay? They don't know. They haven't seen him in, I uh, can't remember how many years, 13 years. They haven't seen him in 13 years. He's matured and he, he's, uh, he looks like an Egyptian. He's got Egyptian clothes on. He's speaking Egyptian. You know, he's the second honcho to the king. They have no earthly idea who he is, and he's not speaking to them in Hebrew, all right? So they're humbled. They, when they approach him, they fall down, just like the dream. <laughs> they bow down before him, and um, they're seeking salvation from the famine. They need the bread of life. He has not revealed himself to them yet, but he's eavesdropping. They don't think he can understand them, but he can. And he's hearing, and he knows that they have admitted their guilt. 
and their sorrow and their repentance over what they had done to him and causing the anguish of his soul, it says. And when he knows without a shadow, he puts them through some tests, and when he knows without a shadow of a doubt that their repentance is real, Judah even offers to be a, a, a sacrifice <laughs> instead, of I, instead of Benjamin. So when, they know all, every, when he knows everything is real and that they genuinely love his father, their father, when he knows that, um, th we have one of the most emotional scenes in all the scripture because he's about to reveal himself to them. And it says that he was weeping so loudly, weeping so loudly that all the house of Pharaoh heard him. Now that coming from a man is something. Just sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And everyone wonders, what is going on here? And then he makes himself known. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Wow. And for the first time, he said it in Hebrew, perfect Hebrew, without an interpreter. And can you imagine those brothers? Oh, my. When it finally computes, not only are they shocked, but they begin to shake. <laughs> they are in trouble now. <laughs> they are in big-time trouble. He has every right to bring about re re uh, retribution and kill them. But instead, what does he do? Instead, he falls on them, and he's weeping, and he's kissing them. And they're just like, they can't believe it. And he's kissing them, and he falls on Benjamin's neck, his little brother. And he's kissing Benjamin and weeping, and Benjamin is weeping, and he is kissing Joseph. And it is just such a scene that you have to have a heart of stone not to read it and be doing what I'm doing up here. And you know what he says to his brothers? Do you know what he says? This is unbelievable. He says, be not grieved. He's worrying about them being grieved. Be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. He says, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Who is the old uh, patriarchal deliverer Joseph was their deliverer and then he says so it was not you that sent me hither but God providence of God and he got it he saw it he knew it he realized it wow you know one day in the divinely planned parallel to that marvelous true story that took place millennium ago there's going to be another scene very similar to it, except exceedingly more wonderful and exceedingly more emotional. And we, as the church, are going to be there to witness it. The true savior of the world, the true Zaphnath Paneah, the source of the true bread of life, the one sent by the Father to check up on his brothers, his wicked brothers in an evil place and who willingly went the great distance from heaven to earth, but was rewarded when he got here with hatred and envy and mockery, and he was stripped of his robe, and he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and unlike Joseph, he was actually killed and thrown into the pit of death. The just one, 
Stephen says in verse 52, was betrayed and murdered by his own brothers in the flesh. When Israel sees him for the second time, verse 13, Stephen mentions, when she sees him for the second time, he is going to say to her, I am Jesus. And just like, you know, when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, and, and just like he appeared to James, his half-brother James, you know, he, Jesus appeared to James in his post-resurrection appearance. His brothers in the flesh did not believe in him until he appeared to James. And then James went running to tell Joseph Jr. and Simeon and, and Jude, I've seen him, Jesus. He, and they all fall down before him. One day, whoosh, just like all of that, in a moment's time, Israel's eyes are going to be open. And they are going to mourn for him whom they pierced who they betrayed and rejected and sold and in a moment's time full reconciliation is going to be made and what it says in 11 Romans 11:26 is going to come to pass all Israel shall be saved wonderful and then just as Joseph ushered his entire family into the best land of Egypt Egypt is a picture of the world he ushered his family into the best land, Goshen, fertile, lush. Jesus is going to usher Israel into the millennial kingdom on earth. Whew. And it's just not a story, lady. It's true. It's true. Did you know that there is an inspired outline for Joseph's life that was actually given to us by him? People have tried to outline Joseph's life. They don't need to make up their own little outlines like I always do my little outlines because he gave them an outline for his life in the names of his two sons. In Genesis 41.50 we read, Unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. He named his first son Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my toil. He named his second son Ephraim, which means God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. That is the outline for Joseph's life. The first part of his life consisted of years of toil and affliction. The second part of it, his life, consisted of forgetting and fruitfulness. And he came to understand that all of it was the doing of the providential hand of God for his glory and for mankind's good. You know, we cannot talk about the life of Joseph without mentioning Genesis 50.20. The Genesis 50.20 principle came from the lips of Joseph as years after and Jacob finally dies, a very, very old man. And when the brothers realize, uh-oh, dad's dead, now Joseph is going to get us. And they're fearful. And they come, and they again, they bow before him so many times in Genesis, it's amazing. But they come before him, and again they bow to him because they're afraid that he's going to finally take vengeance. And you know what he says? You know this one. But as for you... Ye thought evil against me, 
but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as is this day, to save much people. Couldn't Jesus say the same words to his enemies who killed him? But unto you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to save much people. You know, Joseph is also significantly important as, uh, for his uh, personal character, as is Stephen. Joseph serves us as an outstanding illustration of Christ's likeness. And the amazing thing is, he didn't even know Christ. He never met Jesus, but he still lived a Christ-like life. The great message of his life is this, trust and obey. <laughs> Even during the years of toil and affliction, you may have a very dysfunctional family. You may be married to a very difficult man. You may be a very difficult woman. <laughs> you may be unjustly envied. You may be unjustly hated without a cause. You may be suffering because of someone else's sin, right? That happens a lot of times with children. We suffer because the children, you know, go astray. We may be suffering because of someone else's sin or because someone simply forgot to remember us. Maybe you didn't get that job promotion. They just didn't think of you. You might be tempted to self-pity and bitterness because, because God, you know, you think God maybe has just forgotten you and forsaken you. It's like, you know, every time you... And life is like this. It seems like almost every time you finally get up on the, uh, on the mountaintop, what happens? Woo! Down into the valley. Every time you climb back up, there you go. You're from, you know, the mountaintop, the, the pinnacle to the pit, the pinnacle to the pit. Well, here's Joseph's advice to every one of us. Just keep your integrity. Keep your Christ-like character. If you don't have it, get it. <laughs> Keep your integrity and just keep doing your very, very best. And whatever you do, give it your all. Excellence in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that the providential hand of God is at work, even in the valleys, mostly in the valleys, he's at work. Don't get bitter, get better. Keep on trusting, keep on obeying, and the years will come when there is forgetting and when there is fruitfulness. Actually, although at the time for Joseph, I am sure that it seemed to him that he was in the pit or the prison forever. Must have seemed like just forever. Actually, the truth of the matter is that um, the years of toil and affliction were very minuscule compared to his years of forgetting and fruitfulness. He was 17 years old when his brothers sold him as a slave. You know how old he was when he was lifted out of the prison into the palace? He was 30. That's 13 years. That's only 13 years. Now, 13 years when you're in the middle of 13 years seems like a long time. But compare it to this. From 30 to his death at 110, he had 80 years of forgetting and fruitfulness. And then eternity after that. So our afflictions are for what? A season. In a manner of speaking, Stephen himself. Now let's go back to Stephen. Stephen was a lot like Joseph. 
How is that? Well, he had obeyed his father's will by going to his brothers, his Jewish Greek-speaking brothers of the Jewish synagogues, right? Even though he knew that would put him at great peril. And as Joseph, he too revealed his divine revelation regarding one to whom they would one day give obeisance. He gave that revelation to his Jewish family. As Joseph was hated for his revelation, so was Stephen. I thought about this. Upon one, the father's favor was shown by a beautiful robe. Upon the other, God's favor was shown by a beautiful glow. One had the robe, one had the glow. Both men, Stephen and Joseph, were men of integrity and righteousness, for both men were genuine believers. They were both seized upon at a time when they were alone. Joseph suffered the indignity of false accusations, didn't he, from Potiphar's wife, and was thrown into the depths of a dungeon unjustly. Stephen, too, was falsely accused and cast into the depths of death itself. However, as Joseph was raised from the prison to the palace to look into the very face of the king of all Egypt, the world, so did Stephen, from the pit of death, look up to see the very face of the king of not just the world, but the universe. Amazing. And we've just touched the hem of the garment. When you get back home and read your notes, which might come today or maybe tomorrow morning, I'm still working on them, but there's so much more I didn't have time to say. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you. Thank you for the picture types of Christ that are so abundant in the Old Testament. And just give us those anchors of assurance that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, your Son, who was willing to go the second mile, to obey your will, to come to where he would be rejected and despised and even murdered. He did it to save much people. And thank you for that. Thank you for the truth that one day our beloved friends, the Jewish people, a nation, will come to know you. How we have longed for that day and how we look forward to it, seeing you reveal yourself to them. And I pray in the meantime that many Jewish people would be saved, Lord. I pray that many Muslims would be saved, that you would do a mighty revival in this world that needs you so badly because there is no sustenance apart from you. We love you and we pray and I pray that we can be light in this dark world until we meet again. Pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.